Before we dive into John chapter 10, there are a few contextual points that I need to make right here at the beginning. First, well, it's very hard to say if the sermon recorded in this chapter is the continuation of the things Jesus was articulating uh, in the previous chapter, at the close of John chapter 9, or whether this sermon happened at a later date. There is one thing evident about John 10, and that is the fact our author is continuing, maybe not a sequence of events, but he's definitely continuing a theme, a theme that was introduced in the last few chapters. He's going to continue in this chapter. So we don't know if it's, if it's in sequence, if it's in order, if it's just a continuation of the same things, but we do know it's a continuation of a theme that John's presenting, and that's unique to John. John is not really interested in presenting chronology. He's interested in presenting a theme, and that's Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, and that you may believe and have life in his name. Uh, case in point, the blind man will again be referenced in verse 21 of John 10, so there is no question that the same theme is being continued. Secondly, contextual. The purpose of Jesus' sermon here will be to establish an important contrast. Jesus is going to, in this chapter, contrast himself with the religious establishment in light of the way the religious establishment had treated the man formerly born blind. Instead of glorifying God on account of the man's healing, we noticed last Sunday how the religious leaders were offended. Instead of glorifying God, they were ticked off. Jesus would have the gall to heal someone on the Sabbath. Not that he would break the Sabbath law, but their petty traditions. We notice how these religious, these, these men, how they challenged his parents' account. Audacious enough to even challenge whether or not the man had been born blind at all. In the end, throughout the whole thing, they, they treat this man terribly, don't they? To the point that we're told, John says that they reviled him. They hurled insults at him. He had been blind, had been healed, and they don't care. They eventually, we're told, cast him out. He was an outcast because of his blindness. They concluded his blindness was on account that he had, you know, had some sin. He's healed, and instead of seeing that and recognizing maybe God's forgiveness, at least the supernatural intervention of God, they cast him out because they're just jerks. These religious men, and this is a group you should keep in mind, who touted themselves as being the most religious in all of Israel. I mean, these were the experts. The masses viewed these men as pious, as holy. They were revered in this culture. They were the experts of God's word, memorizing huge chunks of scripture. They knew these things inside and out. They had been entrusted with the managing of the temple the procedures, and yet the way they treated people was shameful. They were supposed to represent God, but they did not represent him well. Instead of caring and loving those under their influence, these men were judgmental. They judged the sinner, and they condemned the downtrodden. They were genuinely just mean, sour people. Thirdly, as far as some context goes, Jesus will make his point. He'll establish this contrast. His point about these men. And he's going to use what John calls an illustration to do this. Now Jesus, if you study his teaching methods, he employed all different types of, of ways of, of making a point. But it's interesting that John... John is the only gospel writer who does not record any of Jesus' parables. Not one parable recorded in the gospel of John. And on the flip side, he's the only of the gospel authors to include what's called an illustration. In actuality, we see this in verse 6. John says this was an illustration. We find in the Greek, this word illustration, it's used... In three other places aside from John chapter 10. Twice you'll find this word in John 16. The word will be translated as figurative language. Again, the only other place, four places, 2 Peter chapter 2. The word will be translated as a true proverb, an illustration. 
Now, the reason that this is important is that an illustration is not a parable. A parable, if you don't know, is something specific. It's a unique mechanism for storytelling. The Bible actually defines a parable as a way of communicating a truth to one group of people while at the same time concealing that truth to another, kind of speaking in a riddle. And typically, parables are designed to present one truth. We often get into trouble when we try to break down every single aspect of a parable and try to attribute meaning to it. We can get all kinds of weird theology. Parable communicates one idea. It communicates one idea to a group Jesus wants it communicated to while concealing it to another. That's not what an illustration is, though. An illustration is actually used to articulate several lessons to everyone at once much different than a parable. Now, before we break down the illustration Jesus uses and examine the lesson being communicated, I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to read um, this sermon in its entirety, and then we're going to unpack it. John 10, beginning with verse 1. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he's speaking to the religious leaders, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way The same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. Then John adds some commentary. He says Jesus used this illustration. But they didn't understand the things which he spoke to them. So Jesus said again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they, speaking of the sheep, may have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and and scatters them. The hireling flees (laughs) because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me. Because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he is a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, in order to understand what Jesus is communicating, it's important that we define a few of the components central to the illustration itself. For starters, the sheepfold, and specifically the sheep in the fold, refer to what? They refer to to true followers of God, the people of God. It should be mentioned that the picture of sheep being God's people was something the religious establishment would have understood, especially in its Old Testament context. In a way, they're familiar with the imagery that Jesus is building upon. You know, the first clear use of this illustration, the illustration of sheep being the people of God, can be found actually in Numbers chapter 27. The Israelites are about to enter the land of promise after 40 years of wandering the wilderness, and they're going to enter the land without Moses. 
Moses is concerned about the nation continuing into the land of promise without there being a leader. So we're told that Moses spoke to the Lord and said, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord, and here it is, may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. The first use of this particular imagery. In the verses that follow, the Lord will actually appoint a man named Joshua as the new leader over Israel. Again, throughout the Psalms, you will find sheep being used to describe the people of God. I'll give you just one example. In Psalms 100, we read, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Aside from the Psalms, the illustration of God's people being likened to sheep is used in the prophetic writings of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and Zechariah. For example, most famously, in Isaiah 53, verse 6, the prophet declares, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then prophetically, he mentions of Jesus that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Though the picture of Israel being the flock of God would have been understood by the men listening to Jesus. Please understand, though, that the illustration of sheep being used by Jesus in this text is not limited to just Israel. He expands the imagery. This point is clearly made. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus says, And other sheep... True followers of God, the people of God. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. And he's speaking of Israel. Them I must bring. And they will hear my voice, which is a future tense. A future flock. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's no doubt, no question, that Jesus is speaking of a larger work of the gospel being extended outside of Jewish circles into the Gentile world. He's, he's actually writing of you and me. Well, Jesus will provide more details about the sheep, specifically, in the second half of this chapter. Notice, though, two distinct characteristics of what makes a person a sheep or a member of God's flock. First, Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice, for they know his voice. There's no question this describes here an intimate relationship between the sheep and the shepherd to recognize the voice. They know it. And it's because the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd that Jesus also says that they're willing to what? To follow him. The idea of following spoke of a unique dependence of the sheep to the shepherd. A member of God's flock hears his voice, but then responds, how? By following him. A true sheep in this context. A true disciple of God, has a relationship with and is fully dependent upon the shepherd. Continuing our examination of the various terms Jesus uses in the illustration, when Jesus says in verse 7, I am the door of the sheep, Jesus is declaring to be the only legitimate way into the fold or the family of God. It's why in verse 9 he says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Again, notice Jesus says, if anyone enters by me. This is not just exclusively to the Jewish people. It's being extended to any and all, anyone. And the Greek means anyone, not just the Hebrew people. When Jesus defines himself as the door, the door that's important, right? Why is it important? Well, he says that it's, it's a door that one has to enter in order to what? To be saved. In doing this, he's using the door, a definite article, the. Jesus is not saying that he's a door. 
He's saying he is the only door. There's no way around it. You can't skirt the reality that Jesus is saying clearly that the only way you can be saved, the only way you can enjoy the benefits of being part of the family of God, the only way you can be a sheep, part of the fold, is to enter through the door. Jesus. He is the door. He is the only way that you can gain entry. Friend, Jesus is not a way to God. He claims to be the only way to God. It's a claim of exclusivity. You know what I also find interesting about this statement? I am the door. Is that Jesus is telling us that entering through him yields more than just salvation or being saved. He also says what? Look at it. He says it's through him that you will find, and he uses this word pasture. In verse 10, Jesus will clarify that idea a bit further by saying, I have come that the sheep might have what? Have life. And that they might have that life more abundantly. What makes this description of Jesus as the door so awesome, so incredible, is that it presents Jesus as ultimately a passage into a newfound existence. This word pasture, yes, it can mean food. But in the Greek, the word in its most simplistic definition just spoke of increase, which is confirmed when Jesus adds that he's wanting to give life, but not just life, an abundant life, an increased life, something that surpasses what you've known, what you've experienced, or what you could imagine. I never really understood the full implications of, of, of one of these I am statements. You know, you talk about I am the way, the truth, and the life. And man, you can teach, that preaches. I am the good shepherd, we'll see that preaches. I am the door. You don't get a lot of commentary on I am the door. Okay, you're a door. That's cool, I think. Like, I've never really, like, I struggled kind of trying to understand the full implications. Okay, I get it. You're the only way that we can enter to God. You also kind of say that, but I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Being a little redundant, Jesus, but I'm following you. Never really understood just the full implications of what's being articulated here until, and you'll have to, you'll have to roll with me here. I was watching the second season of the hit HBO show Westworld. And there's a whole storyline in Westworld where I'm processing and it's like I had a light bulb moment about the door. Oh my goodness gracious, I don't think they have any idea what they're doing here, but this is telling me something interesting. Like if you've never seen the show or if you don't know anything about it, Westworld, it was a book. It's a futuristic park filled with human-like robots where people go to the park and they live out their fantasies. The robots are so advanced technologically that it's actually impossible for you to differentiate between who's human and who's a robot. Now what happens, and this is not a spoiler, is that through years of just personal experiences, a few of the robots' AI, their artificial intelligence, become so advanced that they start to question whether or not their current existence is actually real. They start to question, is, wait, is life more than, than this? In a way, they awaken to an understanding that there's more to life than what they know in the park. Now, what makes the show brilliant is that it creatively discusses the essence of human consciousness, free will, predestination, God, what it means to be human. But during the second season, you're introduced to one of these robots an American Indian, who awakens to this reality. He's one of the first robots to start questioning his existence. And again, he grows so convinced that there is more to his life than what he can presently see, he embarks on a quest. He becomes obsessed with finding the door. The door. A portal that he can walk through that in the moment he does, expands his understanding of what it really means to be living. 
He's actually looking for a physical door in the story where he enters, oh my goodness, I'm a robot. It's trippy. Now understand, the idea being articulated, Jesus the door, it's much more than Jesus being an entryway to heaven. The idea of Jesus being the door presents him as a gateway to a greater understanding of your present existence. That there is more to the world around you than you see or you know. Jesus is the door. A door that you walk through in order to make sense of this present reality and come to experience a life that surpasses anything you might ever know. Abundant life, not normal life. An increased life that you might truly see. Pertaining to terms, Jesus ultimately presents himself as the good shepherd. And he does this, note, in contrast to the religious leaders. This is the whole point of the sermon. In fact, he's doing this, establishing himself as a good shepherd, to point out how, how bad of shepherding they, ha- they were, how, how bad they had become. In fact, they were so bad that Jesus doesn't refer to them as shepherds. He doesn't even dignify them. With the title, he, he calls them, you guys are either thieves or robbers or just plain old hirelings. Now, in the context of God's people being sheep, the illustration of a shepherd was also well understood. Aside from the fact that all of the patriarchs, the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all shepherds, as well as Moses was a shepherd, King David was a shepherd. Like the presentation here of shepherding God's people as being the responsibility of the religious leaders, this was not lost on anyone. In fact, the idea of human beings being entrusted to shepherd the flock of God, it carries itself over from the Old Testament context into the New. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul, in talking to the Ephesian uh, elders, he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. He uses the, the, the imagery among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The imagery here of, of the flock and shepherding, it's so perfect. We actually derive the term pastor from the word shepherd. Although these religious leaders had a responsibility to shepherd the people of God, at best, in the illustration, Jesus describes them as being hirelings. Like, that's the best he can say of them. Now, to be fair, there was no question that a great many of the religious leaders Jesus is talking to had genuinely experienced a call of God, that they had legitimately been commissioned by God, For example, the Levites, the whole tribe of people in Israel, had been charged with the care of the temple, the sacrifices, the spiritual state of the nation. And yet, what Jesus is saying here is that instead of of this being a holy calling, caring for God's people, shepherding God's flock, had become instead a vocation. Though a shepherd will stand strong, or should, to protect the sheep from from danger. And the shepherd does this out of love, a sense of responsibility. Jesus says that the difference is that at the first sign of a coming wolf, a hireling bolts, he leaves. And he does so for two reasons. Jesus says he does not own the sheep, so he's not vested. Nor does he actually care about the sheep. Again, he's not vested. Sadly, The interest of a hireling is not the well-being of the sheep, but the wages he's going to earn doing a job. Worse still, Jesus describes another collection of these men as actually being thieves and robbers. Some of you are hirelings. That's the best I got for you. Others, you're thieves and you're robbers. In the Greek, Jesus is describing People who seek the same thing just in a different way. A thief in the Greek, he steals, but he does so with deception. Whereas a robber steals, 
but he does so using violence and intimidation. Though a hireling at least has been called, and to a degree vetted, Jesus said some of the men that he's talking to didn't even enter the sheepfold by the door, but they climbed in some other way. His point is that some of these men, these religious leaders, had not gained their position in Israel in a legitimate way, that God hadn't called them. And historically, we know this to be true. The Sanhedrin was notorious for corruption. The high priest, the role of high priest, as Jesus is saying this, was owned by a family. It was a cartel. Caiaphas and Annas. It was bartered and sold. It was used for corruption, for influence peddling. Say, some of you are hirelings, but others of you, you're robbers and you're thieves. And yet in contrast to this, what does Jesus present himself as? You guys are bad shepherds. Me? I am the good shepherd. And notice in our, in our text what characteristics Jesus uses of a good shepherd. He says a good shepherd knows his sheep and is known by them. That's what makes him good. He adds that a good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and goes before them, leads them out, so that the sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice. Clearly, a good shepherd is good because he's established a personal relationship with the sheep. A relationship whereby they recognize his voice and are willing to trust the shepherd and follow his lead. There's a personal connection. There's such a rapport between the shepherd and the sheep that there's a bond formed. He leads and they follow. Ultimately, Jesus says that you can recognize a good shepherd when a shepherd is willing, that a shepherd loves the sheep so much that he will give his life if necessary. Not only does Jesus say in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep, but to this point, Jesus adds in verses 17 and 18, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. Like so many times already recorded in the Gospel of John, the reaction to this illustration, to what Jesus is saying, the reaction's mixed of the very religious establishment that Jesus is addressing, discussing the sheep, what it means to be a sheep, a good shepherd, the door. John says that there was a division because of these sayings. Some of the men that were present felt the need to write off Jesus entirely. They say, the man's demon-possessed. Others who are more reasonable and fair-minded, they find it difficult to carry forth that logic in light of the miracles that he had performed. They reason, would a demoniac, a demon-possessed, heal the blind? No. Well, verse 22, we read now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Well, the events of chapter 7, 8, and 9, and the first half of chapter 10, take place around the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in the calendar, that would be October, mid-October, mid to late October. In verse 22, John now fast-forwards the timeline about two months. He says that the, it's the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication, it's more commonly referred to as Hanukkah. This is occurring in late December, so two months have passed. Now, John provides us no context to what Jesus does during these two months. He sets the scene as being a cold winter day. It's Jerusalem, and where is Jesus? We're told that he's walking around an area of the temple known as Solomon's Porch. Solomon's Porch was located on the eastern side of the temple precincts, in an area that would have been, just because of the way that the weather worked, shielded from the, the winter rains and the winds. Not a bad place to take a stroll. Now this statement that Jesus walked in the temple presents the idea that he's, he's doing more than walk. He's walking with intent. You might translate it as he's pacing. Jesus is deep in thought. That's what's being articulated. 
I wonder what Jesus was thinking. Now, keep in mind, he's in Solomon's porch. The events that would be coming, the events of the next few months, would bring him back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, where he would be betrayed, denied, illegally tried, crucified. What's interesting, though, is about 50 days after the Feast of Passover would come the Feast of Pentecost. At this point, Jesus has already fulfilled his ministry, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, has told his followers to go to Jerusalem and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's given them a great commission to go into the world, but he says, don't go anywhere until you have the Holy Spirit. And it's 120 of Jesus' closest followers gathered just five months later from this moment. Where? In Solomon's porch. The very place Jesus is pacing, thinking, contemplating, when there's a rumbling and a mighty wind and the Spirit is poured out. And Peter stands up and he preaches an incredible sermon and 3,000 souls were saved and the church was born. Could it be that as Jesus is walking, that he's thinking of the events that would be coming? Either way, verse 24 tells us that the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, tell us plainly. Now notice this group of religious leaders, they, quote, surround him. In the original language, John is communicating that they literally corner Jesus. Can't escape, nowhere for him to go. This statement, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, is misleading from Greek to English. In classical Greek, the word if, that we find, the English word if, it can be presented in three distinct classes. When you run across the word if in Scripture, it can mean if and it is. It can mean if and it might be. Or it can mean if and it's not. So this word English is a terrible language. Classical Greek is beautiful. It's loaded. The word if has multiple meanings. I bring that up because in this context, the way the English presents it lends you to to the belief that that these men are coming genuinely asking an honest question. We really want to know if you're the Christ. Tell us plainly. But that's not what's being articulated. They're not coming to Jesus out of a sincere desire to know the truth. Instead, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. This if and it's not. So they corner Jesus, desiring him to remove their doubt by answering their question concerning his identity plainly. We know you're not the Christ, but let's talk about this. Well, so Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you. Told you, man. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In direct response to their question, tell us plainly, Jesus is about as transparent as one could be. I've told you about as plainly as I can. Just two months earlier, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Like Jesus on numerous occasions has been clear as to his identity. So much so, they know what he's saying because they tried to stone him to death. Beyond that, he says, apart from what I've said, just the miracles themselves, they testify who I am, my identity. You know what the messianic prophecies are, what the, what the Messiah would do. Blind people are seeing Lepers are being healed. Just go back and read your Bible. You will know who I am. It's as plain as day. Now, what makes Jesus' answer here really insightful is that he pinpoints the essence of their unbelief. Like why these men refuse to believe. Now, if separated from the whole, this statement, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, could be twisted to imply that these men could not believe 
because they weren't elected to be sheep. The problem with making that connection is that the statement is not made in isolation. Look again at verse 25. Jesus says, there's a sequence, right? He says, I told you who I am, and you do not believe. Then he says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, before finally explaining that they were not his sheep because what? My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Do you see the sequence, the connection of the idea? Why were these men not Jesus' sheep? They didn't believe his word. He says, I told you and you did not believe. I'm speaking to you and you're not listening. Because you're not listening, it's clear you're not a sheep because my sheep will listen. It all goes back to God's word, what Jesus has told you, and your willingness or not to believe. I also think it's important to point out the tense. It's kind of woven through this statement. He says, my sheep hear my voice. What's implied is that my sheep are continually hearing my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. They're continually following me. They're continually hearing and constantly following. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, never forget, friend, the connection between a sheep and a shepherd is a relationship. Verse 28, Jesus continues, and I give them, this would be his sheep, eternal life. Again, eternal life is that Jesus is is constantly giving a life that will last for eternity. That's what he, eternal life is not something you will get. It is something you have that lasts forever. That's what the phrase eternal or everlasting life. It's a life that lasts for everlasting. He says, I give them everlasting life and they shall never perish. In the Greek, what we have here is with this word never. It's a double negative. And double negatives are frowned upon in English, right? But in Greek, double negatives are used to intensify what's being articulated. In in a way, you could translate what Jesus is saying as they shall never, never, ever perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, still speaking of the sheep, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. How glorious it is to know that your security is based on Jesus' ability to keep you in his hand and not your ability to stay. Verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Again, in the Greek, this idea of Jesus and the Father being one is that they were one in essence. Again, no question that Jesus is claiming divinity. (laughs) The evidence, verse 31, so the Jews took up stones, again, to stone him. Like they understood what Jesus was saying by saying, I and my Father are one. They want to know, who are you? Tell us plainly. He's about as plain. I and my Father are one. I'm God. Spoiler alert. And they're like, okay, it's what we needed. And they pick up rocks. They have him cornered. They're in the temple. Jesus can't go anywhere, right? But Jesus answers and he says to them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Like Jesus is basically asking them to point out what he's done that would be worthy of being executed. Well, the Jews answered, for a good work, we don't stone you but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Inciting a reason that they felt justified in stoning Jesus to death. These religious men, they don't point to something Jesus had done. The high crime was what he had said. It was blasphemy. And blasphemy was a crime punishable by stoning. And yet the irony is that their accusation of blasphemy, it's actually, it's a little off in two ways. 
blasphemy would only be applicable if what Jesus was saying wasn't true. If Jesus wasn't God, then making the claim to be God would have been a stoning offense. Ironically, Jesus was God, which makes his affirmation and claim to be God not a crime at all, but just speaking truth. Secondly, where they kind of get it wrong, if they had listened to Jesus, they would have known this. Jesus was not a man who made himself God. Instead, Jesus was God who had made himself a man. Well, Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Now notice, gods is lowercase g. In Psalms 82, as well as Exodus 21 and Exodus 22, earthly judges were referred to by Jehovah God in the law as being lowercase gods. David Guzik adds that the reason for this was that earthly judges played the role of God. They determined the fate of other men. Jesus continues, verse 35, If he, the God of the Scriptures, called them, these human judges, gods, to whom the word of God came, and and Jesus adds, and the Scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, he's talking of himself, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God. If If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if, and that would be better translated, since I do, referring to the works of the Father, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Again, if these men lack the ability or the capacity to believe because they weren't elected, then why would Jesus at this point be inviting them to believe? He's presenting another invitation. Now note, this is kind of a complex piece of scripture, but it really shouldn't be. Jesus is a rabbi, and he's having a theological discussion with other rabbis, other religious men. And Jesus is using Scripture to justify his use of a divine title. That Jesus used this title, the Son of God, which is what they determined was blasphemy and what they wanted to stone him for. And Jesus' logic here is simple. If God sanctioned the use of the title, lowercase gods, to be used for judges and many of whom were were unjust. And that God allowed that, made that concession to elevate the office, the importance of the office. The logic then is that why shouldn't he be allowed to use a title that might be divine, a title that they might consider to be blasphemy, in light of the miraculous works he was doing that represented God. So that's kind of the flow of Jesus' logic here. Regardless, they don't care. (laughs) Because we're told in verse 39, therefore they sought to seize Jesus. Remember, he's cornered, surrounded, but he escaped out of their hand. Again, John, more details would have been wonderful. Did Jesus, like, take his cloak? I have no idea. It's been said where the Bible is silent, you should shut up about And we're told that Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan. So he leaves Jerusalem. Goes down to the Jordan River to the place where John was baptizing at the first. In context of the flow of John's gospel, it's probably Bethabara. And there we're told Jesus stayed. A beautiful place to go if it's winter. Down near the Dead Sea, it's warm. It's dry. We're told that many came to Jesus. And they said John performed no sign. This is John the baptizer. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true. So many believed in Jesus there. Now the logic here is that while John didn't perform any miracles, clearly what he said about Jesus was true. So he performed no miracles, but his words were true. Meaning, Jesus was performing miracles. So what he was saying had to be even more true than John. The grand takeaway, regardless, is that while the religious leaders, there was a schism 
a debate, a dispute, the common folk in the presence of Jesus believed. Many believed. In closing, there is much about Jesus that we can learn from this section of Scripture. John chapter 10, there's a lot about Jesus. There's no question from the illustration of Jesus being the door that he cares just as much about changing your life right now, today, as he does about saving you from a future judgment. I think one of the things the church gets wrong is presenting giving your life to Jesus as fire insurance. In the sense of, hey, there is a future judgment, and it's real, and there's hell. You don't want to go there, so give your life to Jesus. And then you're given the ticket. Like you're playing Monopoly in life, and you can get out of jail, you know? And that we present, and that's a, that's a wonderful truth. Let's be real. Like that's a selling point. Would you like heaven or would you like hell? And there's a door. The tragedy, though, is that in just presenting that, it's like, great. I'm glad that I've accepted Jesus for what he'll do for me later. But everlasting life is about now. Like Jesus being the door is not just about eternity. It's about your present reality. It's about life. Friend, if you're making your way through this existence, an existence, by the way, that's terrible. Like this life is rough. Even babies recognize it. Like two seconds into this world, they're screaming. They ain't happy. This was not what I expected. This life is brutal. And, and if you're one of these people that deep down you're, you're convinced, or at least you long, there's got to be something more than this. If this is it, it's a cruel joke. Like I'm a robot trapped in somebody else's park. There's got to be. There's a longing. You know, in Ecclesiastes, we're told that, that God puts eternity into everyone's hearts. That's why death freaks you out. You know what doesn't freak you out? Your inability to fly. Have you had those dreams? You know, where you're flying? And you wake up and you realize, man, I can't fly. That doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother you that you can't fly. And you know why? Because you were never created to fly. Like you weren't wired with the genetic capacities for flight. You flap as hard as you want, you ain't going nowhere. So the inability to fly doesn't freak you out because you weren't created to fly. But you know why death freaks you out? Because you were created to live forever. And that bothers you, the finality of it. It doesn't matter what religion you have or don't have. Everyone is freaked out about death. And for good reason. We're all going to die. Like the statistics are incredible. Like no matter what you do, this life will kill you. You will die. It bothers you because you weren't created to die. Eternity was placed into your heart. You grapple with what happens next. Why? Because you know something will happen next. It's not the end. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm the door. I'm this portal. Not just for that moment, but now. Like, do you walk around discontent that you're missing out on something? You don't know what it is but you sense it. And I know that this sounds trippy, but I want you to know, if you feel like you're missing something, 
you are missing something. There is a reality around you. There is an existence around you that you, friend, apart from Jesus, are blind to and ignorant of. There is a life, an abundance of life you know nothing of apart from walking through that door. Yes, ignorance is bliss. But the truth will rock your world. In actuality, Jesus so wants you to experience this reality, this life, new pastures, this great awakening. He wants you to experience it so much that what we learn from this passage is that he took upon himself the difficult work of becoming the door by becoming a good shepherd. In verse 10, Jesus says the main characteristic of a good shepherd is the shepherd's willingness to give his life for the sheep. Then in verses 15, 17, and again in verse 18, Jesus makes that declaration of himself. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it, I lay it down. He says it over and over and over again. Please understand, Jesus died on the cross to conquer death so that he could become the door to life through his resurrection. The Bible is clear that if you want to pass through this door, you have to lay down your life And accept his death on your behalf so then you could be raised to new life in his resurrection. It's how the door works. Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. But I'm I'm alive in a new existence. He says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ living in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I would add, as a good shepherd. Again, no one took Jesus' life from him. He makes that abundantly clear, right? Instead, as our good shepherd, Jesus willingly laid down his life for one reason. He loves you and wants you to follow him. Love for the sheep is what makes Jesus different from all others. A relationship with the shepherd. Not rules to obey, not religion to adhere to, but just a relationship with the shepherd is all that's required for you to be a sheep, to hear his voice and do what? Respond by following him. That's what makes you a sheep. And if you hear his voice and you choose not to, you weren't a sheep. Never forget, the good shepherd became a lamb and laid down his life so that he could save us, the sheep. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that includes you, that might believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, Father, Lord.